Now, in our previous sessions, we've been dealing with Zephaniah the prophet in narrative time. This evening, we want to move on to consider prophet Zephaniah in narrative space. And then we're going to attempt to suggest a combination of the prophet in narrative time and narrative space in order to arrive at a prophetic biography. So this evening, we'll begin, first of all, with a review of what we have done to this point in very summary form with the prophet Zephaniah in narrative time. And Nancy, I'm going to begin with you and ask you to fill in the first blank. Zephaniah is a prophet of what century? Uh, What century would that be, B.C.? Seventh century B.C. prophet. All right, now, he prophesies in the days of whom? Anyone? Josiah. And Josiah's dates are? Anyone again? 640 to 609. 640 to 609. So, Josiah is the second half of the 7th century B.C., So we're coming down to the end of that century. And this is also, internationally, the era of the what of Assyria. What would you say was happening to Assyria in the second half of the 7th century B.C.? Decline. Decline. That's the word we want. The era of the decline of Assyria, or the Assyrian Empire, And the end of the Assyrian Empire is going to come when? Terry, when does the Assyrian Empire die, so to speak? Dick? 687? No. Anyone? 612. 612. That is the destruction of what? Art? What does 612 mark? Lois? Go ahead, Bob. I don't know. <laughs> the, the ten tribes. No, this is the destruction of the empire that destroyed the ten tribes or carried them away into captivity. Oh, In 612? Of Nineveh. Yes, the destruction of Nineveh. And who was it that prophesied that? Art, I'll go back to you on that one. Who prophesied the destruction of Nineveh? Okay, your, smile, your nose is all wrinkled up with a big smile. It starts with an N, yes. N and N, Nahum and Nineveh. Now, while we're, while we're on that topic, uh, turn to chapter 2 of Zephaniah. And when you have verse 13, just read it out. Zephaniah 2, verse 13. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. So not only does Nahum prophesy the destruction of Nineveh in 612, in fact, his whole three-chapter book, his prophecy of three chapters, is dedicated to the destruction of Nineveh. 
by the righteous judgment of God. But Zephaniah also prophesies the destruction of Nineveh, which means that Zephaniah had to live... Before 612 B.C. So it's one way that we can date Zephaniah to the outer limits, what we could say the terminus ad quem, as he's not going to go beyond 612. He's prophesying before that. So uh, we'll talk in a minute about whether we can make it any more specific than that. All right, so uh, Assyria is in decline. The capital of Assyria, Nineveh, is going to be destroyed. Both the prophet Nahum and the prophet Zephaniah predict that. What they predict comes true. Because God is the infallible predictor of future events, and he communicates that information to his servants, the prophets. But this era, uh, the time of Zephaniah, is also an era of the what of Egypt? The rise of Egypt, that is correct. And Egypt is going to enter into a clash in what year? As they're rising once again to international prominence, They're going to encounter a clash on Palestinian soil. And who are the Egyptians going to run into on Palestinian soil? Not the Babylonians. Not the Assyrians. Although he's on his way to help the Assyrians. Josiah is going to try to stop him. What year is that? What happens to Josiah when he tries to stop the Pharaoh of Egypt? He is killed. So what year is that? 609. And where did that happen? Where was Josiah killed trying to stop Pharaoh Necho's army? At Megiddo. And Nico is on his way where? He's heading north through Palestine, over the Pass of Megiddo, to, to Haran, yes, to Carchemish and Haran. And why is he going there? He's going to meet Nebuchadnezzar and his father, Nabopolassar, but why is Nebuchadnezzar there? In other words, why is there going to be this clash between Egypt and Babylon in 609 at Carchemish and Haran? Because when Nineveh was destroyed, what was left of the Assyrian Empire fled to Haran very small part of the Assyrian nobility and army established a garrison in Haran, and Nico goes to reinforce it in order to stop the rise of Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is there to destroy that final remnant of the Assyrian garrison, and he clashes with Nico, and who wins? Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar win, and Nico retreats back to Egypt, and on his way back to Egypt, what does he do that affects the Bible? 
He installed Jehoiakim on the throne of Jerusalem, which means that he had to remove the king that was already on the throne. Who was the king that was already on the throne? The son of Josiah. Josiah is dead. Who is Josiah's son? Mark. Jehoahaz, also known as Shalom in the book of Jeremiah. And where does he take Jehoahaz? He carries Jehoahaz down into Egypt and leaves Jehoiakim on the throne of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is now going to be in the pocket of Necho of Egypt. He's going to control the king. He's going to control Jehoiakim, his puppet ruler. All right, so um, this is also the era of the what of Babylon? Not the decline of Babylon. Not the fall of Babylon. Marge? It's the rise of Babylon. Babylon is succeeding Assyria as the great Mesopotamian world power, and it's clashing with Egypt. It's already had one clash in 609, but there's another clash coming. When's the next clash that Babylon encounters? And who do they encounter in that clash? The next clash is another clash with Nico. Second encounter of Babylon clashing with Nico at the same place, at Carchemish, on the Euphrates. Nico once again goes up the same route he went when he killed Josiah, goes from Egypt all the way up to Carchemish in what year? Six oh five, four years after he originally went up, and this time he meets Nebuchadnezzar without his father. Nebuchadnezzar is too ill back in Babylon; he's too old and frail to go out to battle. So the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar goes to battle against Necho for the second time. They meet at Carchemish, and who wins this time? Nebuchadnezzar, same one that won in six oh nine. Nebuchadnezzar defeats Necho. And he lets him go, like he did in 609. No, he doesn't. He chases him. Where does he chase him, Perry? All the way back to Where did he come from? From Egypt. Yes, he chases him back to Egypt. And on his way back, on his way down, chasing Nico back to Egypt after defeating him in 605, what does he do? What does Nebuchadnezzar do? What else does he do? He besieges Jerusalem. And who does he take out of Jerusalem in 605? Anyone? Daniel. Daniel. He captures Daniel. So the second clash between Egypt and Babylon results in Nebuchadnezzar pursuing Necho back towards Egypt, going south through the Levant, and surrounding Jerusalem, plundering the temple uh, of some of its riches and taking Daniel and his three friends off to captivity. That's how Daniel gets to Babylon. That's how Daniel gets there to write his book of visions. Daniel gets to Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar captured him in 605 B.C. after his second defeat of Necho of Egypt at Carchemish on the Euphrates. All right, any questions about that brief review?
Yes, go ahead, Nancy. I, I just wonder, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he won and defeats Nico, and he chases them back to Egypt. Daniel is living in Jerusalem with his three friends, and Nebuchadnezzar takes him captive off to Babylon in 605. Any other questions? All right, now, this places Zephaniah in this national and international uh, time paradigm. So it gives us the narrative time frame for his career. But can we be any more specific about the time of the prophet? We've already indicated that he's living before 612 because he predicts in chapter 2, verse 13 of his book, he predicts the destruction of Assyria and Nineveh. So he's on the other side, that is, on the upside of 612, remembering that we're coming backwards as we move down to 0 BCAD. All right, now, can we be any more specific about the time of Zephaniah's prophetic activity? Last week, we suggested that he is either pre- or post 621. Now, why did we suggest the date 621 B.C.? He's either before or after 621 B.C. What is it about 621 B.C.? That's when the okay. That's when the king uh, started his uh, reform. What king are we talking about? King Josiah. King Josiah. And Pete, what, did, what happened then? The discovery of the law. So there was a a copy of the scroll of the law of Moses, the books of Moses, that was underneath a rubbish heap in the temple, and it was uncovered, and Josiah uh, read it out in public to the people in 621. Tonight we're not going to explore any more of this question, because we're going to have to deal with it as we move through the text of the book of Zephaniah. We want to simply indicate that there is this open discussion, this open question about the more specific time of the narrative of Zephaniah's prophetic career. Is he before the reform that Josiah brings to Jerusalem, or is he after the reform that Josiah brings to Jerusalem sometime between 621 and 612? After 612, no. So he has to be before 612, and perhaps even uh, before 621. So we'll leave it at that uh, for this evening. So here's our broad narrative time frame for Zephaniah. Yes, David, question? Um, It's mind-boggling to me that uh, the priests and all the attendants in the temple would allow to get into such disrepair that it comes about that they Well, that's a good observation, and how do we account for this decay or this dismissal of the scroll of God or the word of God? Well, remember, we have the longest reign in Judah or Israelite history, the longest reign in Jerusalem. And who's that king who reigns the longest? Nancy? I'm throwing you softballs. Uh, Anyone else? Not Hezekiah. 
Manasseh. And what kind of a king was Manasseh? He was a wicked king. And the wickedness involved what? Idolatry. He filled what with idols? He filled the temple with idols. So obviously anything that wasn't part of the idolatrous worship under Manasseh's reign was thrown into the, into the storage room and uh, started to be <clears throat> piled up with rubbish that they didn't want to use anymore. So that's, that's part of the explanation for what's happened. In other words, there's been a complete shift in the temple, uh, and that includes the temple personnel. <clears throat> so that in part explains why the book of the law was uh, buried under uh, uh, rubbish, etc. Any other comments? All right, now, we want to move on to the next aspect of a biographical paradigm, namely narrative space. Now, this is easy at the beginning, and you'll notice that the space that Zephaniah moves in is given in verse 4. Would somebody like to read out verse 4 for us, chapter 1, verse 4? And against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's far enough. That's all we need, really. So the narrative space includes a nation, and the answer there is Judah, Judah and a city, and the answer there is Jerusalem. So Zephaniah is moving in a national space and in a city or metropolitan space. He is a man that lives in this arena. Now, with respect to the city of Jerusalem, we actually know about his movements because he tells us about his movements. He tells us about portions of the geography of Jerusalem with which he is familiar and into and out of which he moves. Now, you will find that in the 10th verse of this first chapter. In fact, this is the most specific diagram of the geography of Jerusalem that we know from this period. Quite interesting that Zephaniah reports the regions or the areas of the geography of Jerusalem, which he was familiar with and which he undoubtedly frequented. So, as we take a look at verse 10, would somebody please read verse 10 and 11 for us? Don't be bashful. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarters, and the loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All of your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. Thank you very much. Now, you will notice that there are four regions of Jerusalem that Zephaniah lists there, four areas of space that he moves in, that he's familiar with. He's an inhabitant of Jerusalem, and here he talks about the parts of the city. The first thing he mentions is the fish gate. Now, the fish gate was on the north side of the city, and when we come to look at this verse in uh, greater detail, I'll actually have a map for you of the suggestion as to where that fish gate was, but it's undoubtedly on the north side of the city of Jerusalem. 
Now, the second thing that he mentions there is what uh, Bob read out as the new quarter. The more accurate translation of the Hebrew would be the second quarter. The second quarter. Now, the second quarter is in the Hebrew called the Mishnah. The Mishnah. It's not necessary that you get that word down right now. But uh, the Mishnah was a residential area in the northern portion of Jerusalem. Now, there is some dispute or some uh, perplexity about exactly where it was, but once again, he's moving from north to south in this kind of uh, tour that he's giving us of the various areas or districts of Jerusalem. So that second quarter, new quarter, or Mishnah, is also contiguous to that northern region of the fish gate. Then the next thing he lists are the hills. Now, uh, you realize that Jerusalem is called Mount Zion, so you think that it's on a hill already, and that is true. But there are hills on the west side of Jerusalem. They're not uh, high hills. They're they're low-hanging hills uh, by our standards. But there is a western ridge across from Mount Zion. And this is what Zephaniah is referring to here, because in the 11th verse, he talks about the mortar, or the maktesh in the Hebrew. Now, mortar is a kind of basin. That is a low area, once again a residential area, a low area between those western hills that he mentions mentions at the end of verse 10 and the hill of Zion, the mount of Zion itself. So you can imagine, you have the Jerusalem proper, the temple and the palace on the higher elevation hill on the, on the right hand side. And then on the left-hand side, you have these lower western hills, and in between you have this little dip, this little basin called the Maktesh. All right, so we have in this geographical tour these four places, four districts in uh, Jerusalem. We have a kind of a portrait of the northwestern area of Jerusalem in the time of Zephaniah and Josiah. As I said, it's the most detailed uh, geographical description we have of the city in this century. Any questions? So not only does he live in narrative space in the country of Judah, not only does he live in narrative space in the city of Jerusalem, he moves in narrative space in this city, and he tells you the, the areas of the city through which he moves. He's get, like giving you street addresses, only it's not streets, it's districts, it's areas, it's parts of the city. All right, now, in addition to the geograph, go ahead, Nancy. Mm-hmm. Or a loud crash from the hills, either one. It's crashing. No, it's the it's the hills that we're talking about, not the crashing that's coming. Now, he's referring with the crashing sound to what's coming when the day, great day of the Lord comes to destroy Jerusalem. 
All right, now, in addition to that geographical space, there are uh, circles of familiarity. There are social spaces. In other words, Zephaniah rubs up against certain cultural areas, social areas, areas of uh, civilizational familiarity. Now, we want to look within the book and uh, discover what these areas are. And we'll begin with verse 1 of chapter 1. We'll not begin there. We'll hold off on that one. We'll begin with verse 8. And you may want to put your finger in chapter 3, verse 3. So if you have verse 8, please read it out and think about what circle of familiarity this would be. Verse 8. And it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's son, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And now, chapter 3, verse 3. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Uh, Once again, a poor translation, a word officials, should be translated the same way the word was translated in verse 8, the princes. So, what circle are we talking about? Back to verse 1, the royal circle. And why do we say Zephaniah is familiar with the royal circle? Verse 1. What, what particular name in verse 1 tells you that? Go ahead, Kay. You're right. He is from the royal family. So what name in verse 1 tells you that? He is from Hezekiah. He's a descendant of Hezekiah. So we put all of this together and we know that he moves in familiarity with the circle of royalty. We could say that he is in uh, in uh, awareness or in uh, contact with the privileged class of Jerusalem, the upper class of Jerusalem. All right, now the next circle, verse 4. We read part of verse 4 before, but let's read the first two lines of verse 4 again. Anyone? Chapter 1, verse 4. Don't be, don't be shy. I will stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Fine. We'll stop right there. Now let's skip down to verse 11. Read the first line of verse 11. How will the inhabitants of Maktesh? That's enough. What did you read in both verses that was the same? The word inhabitants. Now, take a look at verse 18. And the last line of verse 18. Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Once again, the same word inhabitants. All right, now, this word indicates that Zephaniah, as you can imagine, is also in contact with the general population. The people of the streets. What we call the common people. Now, the reason I put a question mark before 18 is that 18 is talking about all the inhabitants of the earth. So that's the broadest category of all the common people or all people as well. 
But the inhabitants here in the other two verses suggest the common people of Jerusalem, sometimes called in Hebrew the Am Haaretz, the people of the land. Now, we had uh, occasion to talk about the Am Haaretz a couple of times ago, a couple of weeks ago, in which we noted that they were instrumental in the life of Ammon and Josiah. Ammon the father and Josiah the son. How did Ammon die? He was assassinated, correct. And then those who assassinated him were executed by the people of the land. You may remember that in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 24. <clears throat> those would be the common people, at least the Amharats, which is the Hebrew for those people of the land in that verse. That's usually the way it is understood. In any event, notice that we have the circle of what we might call upper-class familiarity with Zephaniah and the circle of lower-class or common folk familiarity of Zephaniah. He is familiar with the people of the streets as well as the people of the palaces. Now, in verse 4, and now we want to read the entire verse, so someone read the entire verse out. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests. Right now, uh, this is a description of a particular social class. And what general social class is being described in this verse? Which is what kind of class of people? Priests. Okay, what general class, what kind of, uh, of uh, so, a social group would they belong to? A religious group. All right, so he is describing, first of all, in the broadest terms, a religious circle. Now, what about this religious circle? Read verse 5, please. Anyone? Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Moloch. So what specifically is the religion of this circle? They are idolaters. So we have a religious circle with which Zephaniah is familiar, which is idolatrous. And uh, now if we turn to verse 4 of chapter 3... We shed a little further light. Upon this circle. And his brightness was at the light. He had horns. Chapter three, verse four of Zephaniah. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. 
Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have looted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. So these idolatrous uh, individuals are both prophets and priests. They are profane and treacherous prophets and priests. These are ministers of idolatry, prophetic and priestly. Notice we are getting more specific about what Zephaniah knows about the religious space of Jerusalem in his day, Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in that fourth verse of chapter 3, he specified the false prophets. These would be false prophets associated with that circle of idolatrous priests. So, a general religious group that consists of prophets and priests who are the very antithesis of the priesthood, or I'm sorry, the prophet call of Zephaniah. And that leaves verse 6 of chapter 1 to complete this description or characterization of the religious circle. Read out verse 6, whoever has it. And those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Now, okay, do you suppose that there are two groups being described there? Or is that just one group? I think it's all one. Anybody think differently? Well, it could be two, because it could be some who, who have followed him, and then some who never did. Very good. All right, so let's go back to that idea. Where would you see the notion in the verse that suggests some have followed him and no longer do so? Very good. So there's a group of people in this religious circle that once did follow the Lord, but they've turned back from doing that. What would we call people that do that today? What would we call them even more strongly than that? Apostates. Apostates, exactly. All right, so there is within this religious circle in Jerusalem a group of apostates. That is, they had at one time followed the Lord, but they have turned away from him. They have apostatized. Which leaves the second part of the verse, and Kay, I'm going to come back to you since you reconsidered your answer and suggested there may be two kinds of people in this circle. What would you say the second circle includes? Those are people who, who did act like they believed in God, but then they, they did not um, ask him for what to do. They did not seek him at all. Uh, it's not that strong. It's no. No, they have not sought the Lord or inquired of him at all. So what kind of people do we have here? What would we call them today? They've got a church in New York now and in London. They're, hiding, they're hanging up billboard signs. They're having worship services. Our non-worship services, yes, Pete said it, atheists, and if you're not aware of the cultural progression of your own day, there is a church of atheists now, organized throughout the world. They are tired of not having a rah-rah session on Sunday, and so they want to have a service 
for no God. And they're <clears throat> getting on TV and they've got their own radio programs and so on and so forth. It's the uh, new and coming thing. Uh, that's, that's the real emergent church, or we should say emergent non-church. All right. <clears throat> Here, Zephaniah is undoubtedly referring to people because he uses the name Lord here, referring to people who are familiar with the name Yahweh or the name of the God of Israel, but they have not sought him. They have not uh, 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 inquired or pursued him. Uh, This is what we would call in uh, systematic theology practical atheism. Practical atheism. That is, they wouldn't claim to be, you know, dogmatic atheists, but they act like it. They, they don't, they're not interested in, uh, in the name of God or in the worship of the Lord. Well, whether or not that's precisely what's at issue, these are people who also have spurned the uh, true God of Israel and have not sought him out. All right, so we have this religious group, which includes idolaters, idolaters priests, false idolatrous prophets, and apostates as well as potential atheists or practical atheists. In other words, there is a large social circle. There is a great deal of human space in this city of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's time that is occupied by rank unbelievers, apostates, and idolaters. He's very familiar with it. He moves in that space, not in the sense that he's a participant in it, but that he is an observer and very much aware of it. He rubs shoulders with it. Once again, this is part of the remnant or the leftovers of Manasseh's degenerate reign, where he filled Jerusalem not only with idols, and with the wretchedness of that idol worship, including the fertility sexuality of the Baal cult, but he also filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. All right, now that takes us to, any questions? That takes us to the second page of the outline. Yes, go ahead, Nick. I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, not only because I said when we talked about pre or post 621, I wasn't going to get into it tonight. Uh, it's, it's fair for you to press it because this, of course, is the nub of the issue. This, these verses here, which we've been looking at, are raising this very difficult question of whether or not Josiah has already brought the reform or not. So you hold on to your question and to your inquiry, or you, you know, your, your interest in having that question answered until we get to these verses again and look at them in detail. I won't promise you any better answer than I gave you tonight, which is actually no answer at all. <clears throat> but you've got your thumb on the nub of the issue of how we more specifically date the prophet Zephaniah. All right, now to the top of page two of the handout. And I put a question mark before verse five, which we've already read. 
and particularly it's the line in that verse, if you're looking at 1-5, they swear to the Lord. Hold that thought for a moment and go down to verse 7 and read out the seventh verse. Anyone? Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guest. Thank you, Sandy. Now, to verse 9, anyone? In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. All right, now, we have some uh, translational issues in verse 9. Uh, I'll read the New American Standard Version. I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold. But the word temple is in italics because it's not in the Hebrew text, but it is an implication that the translators believe is implied for the house of their Lord, and it could be capital L, L-O-R-D. They fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. <clears throat> What kind of space do we have here? In all these verses, what kind of space do we have? This is religious space, isn't it? Quite possibly, Pete, quite possibly referring to the temple. That's one of the reasons I suggested uh, that verse 5, swear to the Lord, you would have to be in a spatial arena to swear to the Lord. And what would that spatial arena be in Jerusalem in the 7th century B.C.? It would be the temple. In verse 7, be silent before the Lord God. Be silent where before the Lord God? You'd have to be in an arena to be silent before the Lord God. If you walked into the temple, would you be raw right? No, if you walked into the temple of Jerusalem, you'd be silent before the Lord God because you're standing in front of the Holy of Holies. You wouldn't be, you, know, you wouldn't be a, a clappy happy. You wouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Okay. So uh, these verses, uh, including verse nine, suggest that there is worship going on in the temple. So in that religious space, what is happening? Verse 7 and verse 8. We've already read verse 7. Read out verse 8, please. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Thank you. Now, what word did you read there that also occurred in verse 7? Sacrifice. Sacrifice, okay? So in religious space, we have religious cult. Now, what do I mean by cult? I mean the instruments or the parts of worship. I'm not talking about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. I'm not talking about cult in that sense, sectarian religion. I'm talking about the worship style, the cultic activities. Okay, So in religious space, we have religious cult, religious activities. 
and what activity is being described in the religious space that we've already noted. Sacrifice. Obviously, Old Testament context, sacrifice is occurring. So, Zephaniah is familiar with this cultic activity, this sacrificial activity. He draws upon it as an image for his prophetic message. In fact, God is preparing his own sacrifice, according to Zephaniah. He's picking up on the image of sacrifice at the altar in the temple and expanding upon it for purposes of his prophetic declaration. So that means that Zephaniah is familiar with sacrificial space, with cultic space, with the space in which worship occurs. In fact, as we will note when we come later to look at verse 7, that statement, be silent before the Lord, is actually hush, hush in the presence of the Lord. It's virtually a liturgical call to worship. Hush, be still and know that I am God. Hush, the Hebrew word is very strong. All right, more cult, okay, Uh, more cultic activity. All right, now, as we come to our break, uh, we'll stop here and we'll come back with verses 11 and 18 uh, for the type of space that's being described there. But you'll notice what we're gaining. We're gaining an increasingly complex view of Zephaniah's activity in the social, cultural space of the 7th century B.C. Jerusalem. And as we're building this picture of him as he moves or he rubs shoulders with uh, those in these arenas, in these spaces of uh, cultural and uh, social familiarity. All right, so take your break and keep in mind as you go that uh, we will not meet next week. Uh, That is the spring break for the seminary, and since I'm part of the seminary, I get a spring break too. We're up to chapter 1, verses 11 and 18. Once again, we're asking what kind of space or what kind of circle of familiarity is represented in these two verses. Let's begin with reading them out. Who has verse 11? Thank you. And verse 18, whoever has verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. Thank you. So, as you uh, observe those two verses, what kind of space 
is Zephaniah referring to there? It's the space in which they trade what? Um, silver and chips. Silver and and gold. And what kind of space is that? <coughs> Commercial space. That's the space of the mercantile. Correct. So, in fact, uh, this mercantile space is located in one of those quarters that are described in verses 10 and 11, uh, particularly, probably, the Maktesh, which is, uh, or the Mortar, rather, which is referred to there in verse 11. All right. So, this is another area of uh, social space, uh, the, uh, the place where uh, gold and silver is bought and sold or traded, uh, <clears throat> purchases are made, etc. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there was a stock market in uh, Jerusalem in the 7th century B.C., but uh, nonetheless, they certainly were trading commodities, uh, gold and silver, at least in terms of uh, purchasing power. <laughs> All right, now, uh, the next category, uh, verses 8, question mark, about 13 and 18, is perhaps a little uh, obtuse. So uh, I will uh, fill this one in for you. Uh, I'll give you a freebie. Uh, Here we're going to consider uh, lifestyle circles. That is, ways of life or philosophies of life that are demonstrated in these verses. Now, let's take verse 8 as an example and see if you can pick up on what is the particular lifestyle uh, that is present in that 8th verse. They wear strange apparel. Foreign attire. Okay, so they're clothing themselves with foreign garments, as the New American Standard translates the verse. What does that suggest about them? Verse 13. They are wealthy. And verse 18 repeats it. They are wealthy. Now, what's being described here is the pursuit of of an extravagant lifestyle. And the purchase of foreign garments is the purchase of rich fabrics and perhaps even jewel-encased fabrics. There's nothing new in terms of lavish uh, dress. It was true in the ancient world as it's true in the modern world. And here, Zephaniah is very much aware of it and aware of its corrupting influence. So uh, that particular uh, wealth which arises uh, from this pursuit of material possessions is a lifestyle philosophy. In other words, it's a way of life, it's a style of life, which is a worldview, a view of why I should have all of these things because these are the material things that give me pleasure, give me power, and give me status. Yes, it is true of 7th century B.C. Jerusalem, and Zephaniah is very much aware of it. Now, verse 9, another lifestyle. 
What do you pick out of that ninth verse? They are violent people. Now, we know this about Manasseh, for instance. He filled Jerusalem with blood. He was a murderer. Here we have people that are also pursuing violence in Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day. That could involve murder, or it could involve just simple uh, brutality, assaults. But in any event, here are people who have a lifestyle which focuses upon violence. They enjoy it. It makes them feel good and powerful. They enjoy humiliating and demeaning and degrading and even killing other human beings. This is a philosophy of life. It still is a philosophy of life in the 21st century. There are those who delight in violence. And the next category is also in that ninth verse, not the violence, and perhaps indirectly referred to in verse 5. What do you see is the other lifestyle of that ninth verse? Deceit. Particularly in verse 5, they swear to the Lord deceitfully. They prevaricate. They are liars. There is a group of people, there is a circle in Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day of liars. They are professional liars. They are serial liars. Lying is a way of life for them. They will not tell the truth unless it serves their purposes. For them, a lie is the truth. They are deceivers. And they practice this as a lifestyle. It gives them power. It gives them status. It promotes their own egos. They love to tell lies and deceive because that places them in the limelight. Nothing has changed in 2,800 years. We still have serial liars. We still have people who believe that their power depends upon deceiving the public. We still have liars who believe it is a lifestyle. All right, now we move on to verses 14 to 16. And this one may be a little bit difficult to pick out. I'm not going to have you read all three verses, but I want you to scan the verses and see what circle this suggests, what social circle these verses suggest. Military? Yes, it is the military circle. It is the circle of soldiers and all that goes along with soldiery, okay? the army of Israel and its commanders and its barracks and its equipment 
Zephaniah using the imagery that comes out of warriors, military personnel. He is familiar with this echelon of his own culture. And finally, verse 3 of chapter 3, and I'm going to ask David Fries what circle this represents. Chapter 3, verse 3. To the legal profession. <laughs> they are both warriors and judges. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> the judges are specified here as a judicial circle. Zephaniah has had experience in that arena as well as the others that we have indicated. All right, now we step back from this internal examination of the circles of familiarity in Zephaniah's experience. And we can sum it up by saying that he was aware of the governing or ruling class and those privileged with access to it. He was familiar with the general population of everyday citizens, the man and the woman and the children of the streets. He is very much aware of the religious circle and its socio-religious ethos, including religious space and religious cult. He's familiar with the commercial arena and the mercantile circle, those who pursue wealth and riches. He's familiar with various lifestyle circles, the lifestyle of the rich and famous, the lifestyle of those who own land, the lifestyle of those who pursue violence, the lifestyle of those who are liars, deceivers, and swear falsely, take oaths which they do not uphold, take promises which they violate with virtually every breath they take. He's familiar with the military echelon, and he's familiar with the judicial circuit. We have a cross-section of Zephaniah's exposure a comprehensive cross-section of society in Judah and Jerusalem, which Zephaniah has experienced. I don't mean to suggest that he has been inside all these circles, but I am suggesting that he is familiar with these circles in terms of what they represent, what they teach, what they believe, what impact they have, even if he is not a participant, that is, he is a member of the circle. He's obviously not a member of the circle of the idolatrous priests, but he's aware of them. He knows what they're doing. He knows what they believe. He knows what they promote. He knows how they worship. His own story then, Zephaniah's own story, has touched the social circles, the familiar circles of these stories. We know a lot more about Zephaniah than what we read in that superscription of verse 1 of chapter 1. As we examine the internal data, the internal comments, the internal words and phrases that he uses, we realize 
that we have a very large portrait of this man in his time and space. He is familiar with all levels of Jewish society in his day, those days of the 7th century B.C. His story interfaces with this story. His biography is reflected in these biographies. All right, so we've concluded our examination of the evidence of Zephaniah in his own narrative time. And this evening, we have concluded our examination of the internal data of Zephaniah in his own narrative space in that narrative time. We are now prepared to suggest a prophetic narrative biography of the prophet Zephaniah. And it goes something like this. Zephaniah is a 7th century B.C. figure whose life interfaces with an era of international crisis, flux, change, including the decline and fall of the Assyrian Empire, the rise and penetration of Egypt into Palestine and Mesopotamia with disastrous results, the emergence of upstart Babylon with her imperial ambitions vis-a-vis Assyria, Egypt, and Judah. The prophet Zephaniah appears in the time of Josiah and comes face to face with a national culture of moral and social depravity. As he rubs shoulders with the people of Jerusalem, as he moves about the nation of Judah, urban, suburban, and rural, he is very much aware of the corruption of the royal class and its elite special interests. He is aware of the corruption and perverse idolatry of the religious class and its hierophants. He is aware of the materialistic greed of the merchant class and its extravagant wealth. He is very much aware of the ethos of the military class and its foolhardy bravado. He is very much aware of the voracious iniquity of the judicial class who devour the innocent like ravenous wolves. Zephaniah has been exposed to the unsavory morals, attitudes, and beliefs of his own nation, a nation destined for destruction in the day of the Lord's fierce wrath. And so, and so Zephaniah searches. Zephaniah takes his lamp, an image drawn from verse 12 of the first chapter. Zephaniah takes his lamp and searches his culture, searches his city, 
his nation. Searches for the light which images his lamp. The light which images his light. Into every dark corner, into every echelon of society, into every gloomy barracks, Zephaniah shines his lamplight, looking, seeking, searching for the reflection of the light, the reflection of his light, the mirror of the light of God hidden in him as a treasure. Would it be mirrored in the darkness of Judah and Jerusalem? Would the princes submit to the light? Would the idolatrous bow down in the light? Would the greedy merchants grasp hold of the light? Would the warriors of Judah contend for the light? Would the judges of Jerusalem adjudicate from the lamp of light and judge righteous judgment? Zephaniah took his lamp, his lamp of the light of God, and held it out for all those in the societal spaces of his time to come out of the darkness into his light. The glorious light of the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God at work in the narrative time and space of his servant prophet Zephaniah in the 7th century B.C. days of Josiah, Judah, and Jerusalem. This prophet of the former times is a mirror of the prophet of these last times. This royal descendant of the line of David of the 7th century B.C. is a reflection of the eschatological descendant royale of the line of David of the 1st century A.D. This protological light-bearing prophet of the word of God is a reflection of the eschatological prophet who is the word of God, the light of the world. Zephaniah's prophetic narrative biography contains Christ's narrative biography in essence. The interface between the prophet of the searchlight and the light of the world is the interface of two lives interwoven in whom God has hidden his treasures for all. Ages. Any questions or comments? David. Um, I have a suspect for what the answer is, but um, has there been any time in the last 2,000 years where Judaism has looked back at these pre exotic prophets and contemplated what they had to say and what it means and 
They don't ignore it. Uh, one of the commentaries which I've been working on is a fairly traditional Jewish commentary with respect to this book. Uh, it has remarkable insights into the Hebrew, so it's useful. But the bottom line uh, for the exposition of this Jewish commentator is the tradition that is represented in Judaism. So the prophetic text is brought uh, to bear, to apply to the ongoing vitality of Jewish tradition. That is, the tradition of ethnic Judaism. Everything serves that purpose. Tragically, sadly, um, they miss the day of their visitation. They can't see any accomplishment of it in anything other than a restoration of triumphant Judaism. For those that believe in that, particularly the Hasidic Jew, but for the liberal or reformed Jew, it's simply the continuation of the ethnic Jewish reality, which has the right to exist in a world which is open uh, to Jews as well as Christians, as well as to Muslims as others. It has the right to exist, but it is not the end or the meaning of the prophetic text that they study. They have eyes, but they see not. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Scott. You're talking about his narrative biography, and, and you imply something about it in relationship to Christ's narrative biography. Can you express that a little I'll try to make that more emphatic, but uh, the unique element here is in the 12th verse of the first chapter, and that is the lamplight that Zephaniah bears. If you're familiar with the iconography of the Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah is always portrayed in pictures holding a searchlight. That's because of this verse. And that light, of course, is the light of God's own searchlight, uh, looking for a mirror reflection, as I indicated. He's seeking a, uh, a, a uh, shall we say, a shout out or shout back, a reflection of that light, uh, which he does not find. Uh, destruction will come. And in so doing, you see, as the protological prophet of light, he anticipates the eschatological light of the world. So that mirror reflection will find its fullest expression in Christ himself. So Christ himself, the embodiment of Zephaniah in terms of that light motif, and Zephaniah, the anticipation of that light in terms of its projection and fulfillment. That's the Christological center, you see, of the, of, of the prophet. That, that's how Christ is present in this book by his own projection through the life of his prophet, the life of Zephaniah being mirrored in the life of Christ even beforehand. Yes, uh, although we cannot say that, that about him exclusively. Jeremiah is also in this era, and so is the prophet Habakkuk. But it's peculiar to Zephaniah that he's this prophet of the searchlight. And so that motif 
you see, which will be filled out. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Don't walk in the darkness. Walk in the light. See, all, all of that ultimately has its, has its, uh, it's, it's rooted in what is present in Zephaniah's image. If you distinguish him from any of the other Old Testament prophets, not only on this pivot of the day of wrath and the day of grace, it goes through the treasure of the light. That is, the light of God, the word of God, which is a treasure, and shines in the darkness. Yes, Cheryl? You said that the liars want to bring attention to themselves. But wouldn't that expose their lies? Are we so naive that we don't see the lies? Well, it's not naivete. It's uh, those who are uh, skilled at this and professional in uh, doing it are trying to change the narrative. In other words, they are practicing uh, deceit and uh, lies for the, for the purpose of making lying a virtue. They're changing the moral ethos. They're turning the world upside down in that sense. <laughs> so they, they have the power to do it, and they do it without conscience, and they do it for the sake of aggrandizing or increasing that centrality of ego, which places them in the spotlight as they pursue, pursue it. And uh, consequently, uh, you know, as Isaiah says, good becomes evil, evil becomes good. So lying becomes the truth, truth becomes a lie. It's just a turning of the screw. David? I don't know why you're describing the legal profession in such detail. <laughs> Actually, I wasn't thinking of your profession, David. I know an awful lot of religious people that are this way. <laughs> a lot of theological people that are this way. <laughs> Remember, I went to a liberal theological seminary. I spent four years dealing with them. I was in a denomination of liberals for ten years. I understand how they think. Any other questions or comments? All right. Remember, don't come back next week. Uh, two weeks hence. Lord willing, we'll see you. Shall we close in prayer? Father, we rejoice that the searchlight of your word reflects upon our own lives. And we rejoice in the grace of Christ that through that grace, light reflects upon light. We are delighted that he has been pleased to shine upon the darkness of our own souls and to transform that, transform that darkness into the marvelous light of the kingdom of God. We bless you for the prophet Zephaniah who anticipated that, the treasure of your light that was hidden in him and displayed by him. And we continue to ask your blessing upon our study of his wonderful prophecy as we begin to look at the details of verse by verse and so see more of that light as we make our way through your infallible word by your servant, Zephaniah. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet of all. Amen.